Hello and welcome to Timeless Files, a fan podcast for the TV show Timeless. I am your host, Chris Butler. Timeless completed its 10-episode second season broadcast on NBC in the States on Sunday 13th of May. Since then, there's been no news yet about a renewal for season 3, but that news is expected any day. Fans are quietly losing their minds while they wait. I remain hopeful because Timeless is a brilliant show and it is watched by millions of people around the world and people care passionately about it. I'm not going to talk about the last episodes here yet because they haven't been shown in the UK yet but I will say the ending does not disappoint and the last hour is amazing. The focus of social media throughout the whole run of Timeless has been obviously real enjoyment of the series and a feeling that it has been fantastic with a run of such great episodes but also a tangible fear that it might not be renewed for a third season. Twitter has been on fire during the last week with clock blockers campaigning for the renewal. It's a measure of how important this show is to the people who love it. Almost all the decisions about renewals for other shows have been made now. It would be lovely to be able to watch Timeless without the fear that it's going to be cancelled. Is it too much to hope for that NBC could announce a renewal for multiple years so we could all just relax and watch it? My hopes of keeping pace with the weekly UK broadcast of the episodes and putting out a new podcast each week all went south when my laptop died but I will of course be discussing all the remaining episodes now that I'm back up and running again. On with the podcast then. Just so you know, the rest of this episode of Timeless Files was recorded before I saw the season finale. This time I'm talking about season 2 episode 4, The Salem Witch Hunt. The episode starts in Salem, Massachusetts. The caption tells us it is September 22nd, 1692, which I think is the furthest back in history they've gone on the show, by some considerable margin. Alice Parker is pronounced guilty of witchcraft, and like seven others that day, is hanged for her supposed crimes. After that brief scene at Salem, we cut back to the scene everyone is waiting for, the present day, Gilroy's bar, where Wyatt has just discovered that his wife Jessica, who was murdered six years previously, is somehow miraculously alive again. We don't know how this is possible, but somehow history has been changed and she's alive. But if anything, she seems irritated by Wyatt. She says she hasn't seen him for two months because he's been away on a mission. She's been busy running the bar and says, can we talk later? She asks him where he's staying. He's confused but has to think on his feet. He says he'll send her the address. He's come straight from the bunker so he's not really staying anywhere other than there. None of the time team really have regular lives anymore. They've been isolated in the bunker to keep them safe from attack by Rittenhouse. And speaking of Rittenhouse, the next scene is with Nicholas Keynes, Carol and Emma. He's on an exercise bike. He's watching video footage from Woodstock, maybe, or similar. He asks when women started dressing like men. Carol says about 1922, which is not long after they rescued him from World War I. 
He says he hates the exercise bike, but Carol tells him it will help him to recover from the surgery. But Emma looks over her shoulder and says, consider it gone. At first I thought she meant his injuries, but that's not the case. He still has bandages visible beneath his shirt, so he's not suddenly miraculously healed or anything. What she actually meant, I think, was consider the exercise bike gone. It's quite an aggressive move by Emma to make decisions in front of Carol that she knows Carol won't agree with. Carol gives Emma a disapproving look. She asks Nicholas if he's been catching up on the reading she prepared for him. History books, family records, their enemies. Nicholas asks about Garcia Flynn. Carol says he's locked up thanks to Lucy. Which isn't actually true anymore, but they don't know it yet. Nicholas and Emma exchange a look and then Nicholas tells Carol that something has to be done about Lucy. Carol reminds him Lucy is his great-granddaughter, but he says Emma has filled him in on her exploits. He starts to say that if Carol can't handle Lucy, but Carol says she can, so Nicholas sends her to do that, and the implication is that if Carol doesn't solve the problem, then he and Emma will. The overall impression is that Emma is becoming a kind of confidant to Nicholas and Carol doesn't have a good rapport with him at all. Next we switch to the bunker and Gia and Rufus. Gia says she needs to tell him something but she needs him to promise to stay calm. She tells him that the seizures she's been having are more than seizures, they're premonitions of the future and lately they've been of Rufus's future. He doesn't really take her seriously. She says there was her premonition he would hurt his arm, and then he did. He says that was just a coincidence. She says she's seen something worse now. He still dismisses what she's saying, which makes her really angry. And I don't blame her. Rufus is not always the most sympathetic person. She says she saw him in colonial times, she thinks. He's covered in blood. He's aiming a musket at a pilgrim with a scar on his cheek. The pilgrim is begging for his life and then Rufus kills him. We see all this as she's describing it with glimpses of the scenes that we'll get to see fully later in the episode. And it's significant that in this version of events we get to see Rufus fire the musket. Rufus is still unconvinced though. He says maybe none of this is quite what it seems. She eventually agrees, maybe. I still think there's more going on here than straightforward premonition of the future. You can call them premonitions, but they seem to be specifically about when history changes. But we'll have to see how this plays out in the remaining episodes. Anyway, the next thing is that the alarm sounds, telling them that the mothership has jumped. Connor tells them that it has landed in Salem which means pilgrims, which ties into Gia's premonition. Lucy says the date is at the height of the witch trials. Denise asks Lucy to try Wyatt again. They need him back there. Wyatt left the bunker against orders at the end of the last episode. Lucy says she's tried calling him 20 times, but he's not answering. But she tries again. She goes back to her room to make the call, and this time he answers. Lucy and Wyatt had finally got together just before all of this and I think they are majorly in love with each other at this point so naturally she's been worried sick about him. 
He tells her that Jessica is alive. She's shocked, of course. Neither of them have any idea how this is possible. What change to history could have brought Jessica back? Wyatt says Jessica has lived through six years that he knows nothing about, and it seems he wasn't a good husband. Now, Lucy could react any number of ways here, but her response to this idea that he's been a bad husband to Jessica is to say that he has a chance to change things now. We know how much she cares about him, but her instinct is to say that he should be with Jessica. She is his wife. It's everything he's been hoping for. She says this is a good thing. It's not good for her, though, and with everything she's been through, you have to worry about how she's going to deal with this and what it's going to do to her. Wyatt does behave very honourably, I think, in the circumstances. He has strong feelings for Lucy, and he knows it, and he's not happy here in the way that he might have expected to be with Jessica back in his life. He asks why she called him, did the mothership jump? She lies and says, no, everything is fine there. She tells him to focus on figuring things out with Jessica. He says he's sorry. She says, don't be. But it's clear that she's putting a brave face on how she's feeling. She goes back to the others and tells them that Jessica is alive. Agent Christopher's reaction is surprised that Jessica was ever not alive. Which makes complete sense, but it's very disorienting for Lucy and Rufus. They're now in a timeline where Jessica never dies. Wyatt and Jessica have been a couple throughout all of this, as far as Agent Christopher and everyone else knows. And yet Wyatt is still on this team. Presumably Christopher knows a version of events where Wyatt has been on these missions, but has not been motivated at all by the death of his wife. Everything seems essentially the same, however. They're still in the bunker, battling Rittenhouse as before. You have to wonder what else might be subtly different, though. Denise might not be surprised that Jessica is alive, but Rufus certainly is. And, incidentally, Gia doesn't say a word here, but the expression on her face, showing how confused she is, is absolutely priceless. I must have watched this scene quite a few times before I noticed it, because I was busy looking at Rufus's reaction. But Gia's face is hilarious. Rufus checks their systems tracking the mothership and sees that while they were in 1941 for the Hollywoodland episode, the mothership went to San Diego 1980 and was there for just one hour. When Wyatt tried to save Jessica in the Karma Chameleon episode, he went to 1983. This mystery trip by the mothership is to three years earlier than that. Rufus speculates that maybe Rittenhouse found Jessica's killer and stopped him. But if Rittenhouse are responsible for bringing Jessica back, why did they do it? Rufus says maybe they wanted to throw Wyatt off. He might quit the team to be with Jessica. And he says they didn't do well the last time they tried to replace Wyatt. Ah, Baumgardner. Maybe they could bring him back from the dead. Denise interrupts the speculation to say that Rittenhouse are in Salem and could be ripping history apart, and without Wyatt they are short a soldier. Lucy says she and Rufus will go anyway. She's already told Wyatt not to come back. For the moment. And then Garcia Flynn speaks up, saying, 
it would be better if they did have a soldier with them, and he's volunteering. Flynn hadn't said a word during the preceding conversation, and it wasn't obvious he was even in the room, but he must have heard every word. He makes it clear he knows a lot about the historical events at Salem. Denise is against Flynn going. She got him out of prison so they could benefit from his intel, but she hadn't intended for him to go on missions. Incidentally, she says that the NSA suspects the Iranians are to blame for his escape. Agent Christopher is playing her cards very close to her chest if the NSA don't know what's going on. Lucy has consistently been more forgiving of Flynn than anyone else is. She says he may be a killer, but they share the same enemy. And she says a woman and a black man will fare better in Salem if they have Flynn with them. She asks Flynn directly if she can trust him, and he nods his head to say yes. Denise finally agrees, but tells him Lucy is in charge. He asks for a gun. Rufus says no way is Flynn having a gun. He doesn't want to be shot in the back. Flynn says, like, that's the only way I'd be able to kill you, which is a great line. He doesn't get a gun, but the three of them climb into the lifeboat and buckle up. He's fairly disparaging about the lifeboat. Rufus says they beat him in it most of the time. Flynn says, cheer up kids, this will be fun. I think it's a smart move by the writers to make Flynn a kind of lovable rogue here. It was always going to be a tough sell to bring Flynn into the team. But the writers have kept the dangerous quality that he has, but also made him kind of funny with it, which really works. So Lucy, Rufus and Flynn arrive in the woods at Salem. It's a few hours before the hanging that we saw in the opening scene of the episode. Rufus is curious that there aren't more people around. Lucy says people were staying in their homes by this point, rather than risk being linked to the rituals that were supposed to have taken place in the woods. That would be the woods where they are. Rufus looks worried, so Lucy says, You do realise that witches aren't real, right? At which point a hooded figure strides out of the fog towards them. Lucy and Flynn head off to greet whomever it might be. Rufus says, no, no, don't head towards the demonic entity. But of course it's just a young woman. She introduces herself as Abby. Flynn gives his name as Isaiah and says Rufus is his manservant. Lucy doesn't bother with aliases this time. She says she and Rufus have come from Boston. Abby asks if they've come to be entertained by this afternoon's hangings. Flynn says he and his wife are here to help. Lucy looks mildly alarmed that Flynn has put forward this story that they're married. She says they were sent by their church in Boston by Reverend Willard, which is a credible story, actually, as Willard is a real historical figure who was opposed to the witchcraft trials. But that's not especially important in this episode. Abby pins up a notice to the tree where the men and women will be hanged, condemning the trials. Lucy tells her it is dangerous to speak out, today of all days, but Abby says she couldn't live with herself if she didn't speak out. I've talked before about how much story gets packed into the first ten minutes or so of timeless episodes before the credits come up. That is definitely the case again here. We really have covered a lot of ground. But the credits are on screen now. This episode is written by Kent Rotherham, 
He previously wrote episode 6 of season 1 of Timeless, the Watergate tape. And he also co-wrote episode 14, The Lost Generation, with David Hoffman. And he generally has a story editor credit on Timeless, so definitely a main man in the writer's room for the show. And this episode is directed by Guy Furland. He previously directed episode 15 of Timeless season 1, which was Public Enemy number 1. I think it's fascinating how directors sometimes come in to do very similar episodes to the ones that they've done before, and sometimes it's the opposite. Public Enemy number 1 was set in 1931, so it really has very little in common with this episode. So Guy Furland has to do something quite different with the directing here. But that's the nature of the show. No two episodes of Timeless are quite alike. Jessica arrives at a hotel room to talk to Wyatt. He must have hastily rented the room since he can't exactly take her back to the bunker. Although, watch this space. He's trying to figure out what's been going on with her and the Wyatt she knew. It seems that two months ago he disappeared on a mission. The last thing they did prior to that was to see a marriage counsellor. She hands him an envelope and says it's only fair that she do this in person. He opens it and finds she's presented him with divorce papers, which she has already signed. She says they have to face it, they're not the couple they wanted to be. Wyatt puts the papers down and tells her he's changed. She tells him he's drunk five nights a week, he's jealous, and every time she leaves he begs her to stay and promises to change. And he does change, but three weeks later he changes right back. She's done. He's kind of reeling from all of this, but trying to stay positive. He says he's just been going through some stuff, and he begs her to give him another chance. He tells her, together forever, right? Which must be a phrase that has particular significance for them. But she says they're never together. She says he puts her on a pedestal, but she's not that person. He says she is to him. He needs her. The scene is a bit of a gut punch for the viewers who know Wyatt to be a good guy, given everything we've seen him do on Timeless. But we do know that at the time Jessica disappeared in the original timeline, she and Wyatt had been arguing, and jealousy was a part of it. So this idea that Wyatt was not a great husband to her is sort of consistent with what little we know. It doesn't reflect well on Wyatt, and it's interesting that the writers are willing to go there. So you've got Wyatt turning away from Lucy for someone who doesn't want him, or doesn't appear to want him. It's great writing, I think, but it's not a comfortable place for the story to go to, and for the audience to go to. Lucy, Rufus and Flynn have followed Abby to a tavern where Justice of the Peace, John Hathorne, announces that nine witches will be executed as planned. Lucy is confused because it should be eight witches. Abby calls out for a new trial on the grounds that there is no such thing as witchcraft. But Hathorne is clearly not prepared to entertain that. He asks, who is Abiah Franklin? Lucy is shocked when she hears that name, because Abiah Franklin was Benjamin Franklin's mother. And she is the young woman they met earlier. 
She is arrested and Hathorn announces she will hang with the others. Lucy tells Rufus, Abiah cannot be killed. She gives birth to Benjamin Franklin 14 years after this. Benjamin Franklin made it okay to criticise the people in charge. So erasing him from history is a step towards tyranny. Exactly the sort of thing Rittenhouse would want. After Abiah, Abby, is taken away, Rufus sees a man talking to Hathorne, a man who has a scar on his left cheek. Rufus tells Lucy and Flynn about Gia's visions at this point. He thinks the man with the scar must be the Rittenhouse agent. Lucy and Flynn are just as sceptical about these visions as Rufus was. But Flynn decides to go after the man and question him. Flynn wastes no time in roughing up the man with the scar. But they quickly discount the idea of him being a Rittenhouse agent. The only information he gives them is that accusations often come from people close to the accused. So Lucy thinks possibly it is Abby's sister who has accused her. She says Benjamin Franklin's aunt was one of the most outspoken accusers in Salem. Back with Wyatt and Jessica, he is trying to tell her that she might be in danger without telling her why. The fact is that anyone close to the time machine is potentially in danger from Rittenhouse. He says she doesn't understand that what they have can be taken away in a moment. She thinks he's saying that he could be killed at any moment, and that must be difficult for her. But she says that's not it. She can cope with the worry of what might happen to him because she's proud of him and what he does. What she can't stand is the secrecy, that he can't tell her about what he does. She says she can't be married to a state secret. Now, she has been back in Wyatt's life for minutes, not long at all, and she's already presented him with divorce papers and told him the thing she can't stand is his secrets. So the question is, is this all completely genuine, or is she manipulating him into confiding in her about the time machine and the time missions? His response is to promise he will tell her everything. It's obvious that he completely trusts her. The audience will be more sceptical. Would it be too obvious for her to be a written house agent? The writers certainly want you to think that she could be. That's all part of the drama that they've started here. We cut back to Salem. Lucy and Flynn are on their way to see Abby's sister. Rufus decides he will go and have a look at the jail because maybe there might be a way for him to get Abby out of there. Flynn observes that Lucy is not as fearful as he remembers. He thinks her time with Rittenhouse has toughened her up. They meet with the sister, Bathsheba, and her husband. There's a running gag of sorts in this episode that Flynn can't find a gun, or any other weapon, anywhere in Salem. These God-fearing pilgrims don't have guns. He's finding it very frustrating. Lucy tells Bathsheba she knows she's behind accusations against the supposed witches. The husband demands they leave. Flynn looks at Lucy, checking he has her permission. She nods and he gets to work with the intimidation. Bathsheba quickly admits to accusing other women, but not her own sister. So that's another suspect ruled out. They meet up with Rufus again back at the tavern. Rufus says it's not going to be easy to get Abby out of that jail. He notices that the man with the scar has come into the tavern. 
and before they know it they're surrounded. Flynn manages to fight his way out, abandoning them. Rufus is a bit disappointed that Flynn didn't get them out too, and this is when Carol Preston walks in, points at Lucy and tells everyone that Lucy is a witch. Wyatt has decided to take Jessica into the bunker. This is a dubious decision, to say the least. He says he wants to show her around and explain a few things first, but within a few seconds he runs straight into Agent Christopher. She is furious with him. She says she'd like to bring her own family down there, but he knows the drill, or should do. She tells him what they learned about the mothership going to San Diego, 1980. He knows what this means, that Rittenhouse brought her back. Wyatt says she could be in danger. Christopher says if Rittenhouse brought her back, she could be the danger. Wyatt says six years ago he buried his wife, and now she's back from the dead. He says this too loudly and Jessica hears it. Her reaction is to turn around and try to run away. I'm not quite sure what she's thinking. Maybe that Wyatt is mad. But she runs straight into Connor Mason and stops in her tracks. We're reminded that Mason is famous. She is completely starstruck and can't believe that Wyatt knows Connor Mason. Back in Salem, Lucy is pushed into the jail along with the other convicted witches. Abby is there. It took me a while to place the actress playing Abby. She is Sophia Vasilieva, who I watched for many years as Ariel Dubois in Medium. She's a bit older now, but still very recognisable. Anyway, the women discuss the unfairness of what has happened to them. Abby says it's dying in disgrace that hurts the most. Lucy says they are brave and she is proud to be in their company. Carol arrives at the jail and speaks to Lucy through the bars. Lucy demands to know how she could do this, trying to erase Benjamin Franklin from history. Carol says it is a necessary sacrifice. There's no sleeper agent in Salem. This is all her doing. Lucy also asks why they've brought Jessica back, but Carol says they have no time. If Lucy agrees to go back with Carol, she's sure they can convince Nicholas. They can go home together. Carol is begging her. Lucy says she'd rather be hanged. And good for Lucy. But Carol slips her a small knife and says if she can escape, she'll take her back in the mothership. This might be Lucy's last chance. And Carol's too, she says. Which is interesting. Sounds like she's not confident of her position with Nicholas Keynes at all. Flynn has gone back to Bathsheba's house. Her husband discovers him. Flynn says he could see it in his eyes. There is a rifle here somewhere. Bathsheba arrives in the doorway with the rifle. Flynn easily takes it away from her. Finally, he says. Happy at last. The witches have been brought to be hanged. The rope is put around Abby's neck first. Rufus and Lucy are trying to cut the ropes that are holding them, using the knife that Carol gave her. They've just about cut through them when Flynn starts shooting. Lucy runs forward to help Abby. Justice Hathorne attacks her and stabs Lucy's arm with a knife before Flynn shoots him. 
Despite her wound, Lucy works with Rufus to free all the other women. Lucy tells them to go to New Hampshire where they will be safe and to stay away from Salem. Flynn is continuing to injure and kill as many as he can while the others escape. In the confusion, Rufus ends up facing the man with the scar. He has a pistol and Rufus has a rifle, just as Gia foresaw. Rufus begs the man to just walk away and leave. Slowly, Rufus puts his gun down. The man turns to go, but then a horse and cart races past and knocks him down, killing him. Rufus is distraught because he hadn't wanted the man to die, but it happened anyway. What's interesting here is that Gia's vision definitely showed the rifle being fired, but that's not what happens, which suggests that things can happen differently than in her visions, but also that trying to change things might not result in a very different outcome. I'm not a big fan of the idea that people are fated to die at a particular time, regardless of what action they might take. So I'll be very disappointed if Timeless starts to push that idea in these stories. I think and hope that what they're doing here is putting the doubt into Rufus's mind, so that he has to deal with this in later episodes. How much free will does he have? So they've done what they needed to in Salem. They've saved Abby and they've saved the others that were accused too. They climb back into the lifeboat... With her injured arm, Lucy is struggling to buckle up, so Flynn helps her. She tries to say she doesn't need the help. We know this is something that Wyatt might normally do. Flynn says it's quite a big change she's just made to history in Salem. She says she can't sit back and watch innocent people die anymore. To hell with history and to hell with her mother. This is a big change from the Lucy we first met. Flynn says she's nothing like her mother. Rufus says let's go home. He's starting to miss Wyatt, which is a very pointed comment for him to make. It suggests he disapproves of this whole conversation between Flynn and Lucy, and she knows it because she takes a long look at him. Back in the bunker, Wyatt, Gia, Denise, Connor and Jessica are waiting for the lifeboat to arrive back. They've obviously told Jessica about time travel, but she says she doesn't believe them. Then the lifeboat jumps back and she has to believe it. Wyatt pushes the steps up to the lifeboat. Lucy climbs out first and she sees Wyatt. Then she sees Jessica. She doesn't react to it particularly. She just looks tired. Flynn kind of shepherds Lucy down the steps and past Wyatt. It's all very awkward. Gia and Rufus have a conversation. History now tells the story of the Salem Witch Revolt rather than the witch trials. And that's the history that Gia knows. He tells Gia that he didn't shoot the pilgrim, but he died anyway. And he says this happened only because of what she told him. He wouldn't have gone after the man otherwise. She's surprised that he seems to be blaming her for it. She says she won't apologise for telling him the truth. He says he doesn't want her to apologise, but it might be best if she doesn't tell him about her premonitions in future. I can sort of see why Rufus might think that is the best thing to do, but it's not what I would do. I would tend to think that information about a mistake that you might be about to make would be useful to have. 
Next we see Carol returning to Nicholas Keynes again. She tells him that Flynn appeared in Salem and that's how Lucy got away. Then she realises that Emma is in the room too. Emma says, was that how it happened? Nicholas says he's taking Carol off the Lucy assignment. He says it's not her fault, she's only a mother. He looks at Emma and says Lucy is their problem now. And Emma looks like the cat that got the cream. She's scheming, that's for sure. In the last scene of the episode, Wyatt explains to Jessica that in his reality she died six years ago. And his whole life ended that day. Given that he'd been getting himself back together again because of Lucy, it's jarring to hear him talking this way. We hear again the story of what happened that night when they argued and he drove away without her. And then she was murdered. And he saw the body. He says he is literally not the same person she has known for the last six years. He says he doesn't know what that guy did. But he's sure that he deserved to lose her. But he is begging her for one last chance. And that's the end of the episode. Given that everyone was in a more optimistic frame of mind right up to the end of episode 3, this episode was always going to be a rough ride for the fans. It has two big things going for it though. The first is that somehow they managed to make Jessica very sympathetic. It would have been so easy for them to make her just be Wyatt's wife and not have a great deal of depth to her. But she's already been shown to be an interesting, well-rounded character in her own right. She's actually quite charming. I don't think it's any coincidence that we've gone from the fairy tale romance of Hollywood in the last episode to a witch hunt in this one. We certainly have our suspicions about Jessica, and we could jump to the conclusion that she is an evil Rittenhouse agent, but maybe we'd be falsely accusing her if we did. I suppose we'll find out. The episode is also notable for Goran Viznich's performance as Flynn. He really seems to be relishing the role and bringing a kind of manic energy to it. It's in the writing too, of course, but I think the performance is really helping to carry the story forward, where it could easily have sagged with the disappointment of Wyatt and Lucy's romance having been completely derailed. Story-wise, the introduction of Jessica is obviously the main thing. That is all for this episode. Next time I'll be discussing the format busting season 2, episode 5, The Kennedy Curse. All the episodes so far are available on the site, timelessfiles.podbean.com or in all the usual podcasting places, including iTunes, Stitcher and TuneIn. And you can find me on Twitter at, at timelessfiles. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.